We will be in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll pick it back up today, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 15 to 17. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. So turn there in your Bible with me. As you get there, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, in Psalm 39, David sings to the Lord and asks him, Lord, teach me to number my days. Let me know how fleeting this life is. And indeed, that's a refrain that we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, one that comes to my mind immediately was uh, in the book of James. What is your life? What is your life? We don't know what tomorrow may bring. We don't know when something may end our life. Should we spend our lives in worry about things that may never be, uh, especially when they're improbable? <laughs> Should we spend our lives, our time, worrying about things that are very real to be concerned about? There are things in this life that we know will happen. We know one day we will draw our last breath should the Lord tarry. There is coming a day when you will die. That day may be tomorrow, may be a hundred tomorrows from now. It may be a thousand tomorrows from now. It may be 10,000 tomorrows from now. But we know that will happen. So should we spend our day worrying about it, fretting about it? And what does it mean when David prays, when he sings, teach me to number my days? What is he getting at? What does it mean to consider our life? Right, what James asks, what, what is your life? What does that mean? Well, today we come to Paul's exhortation to this end. It's in the same manner as these other two. And indeed, I want us to see today that wise living is living in the light of the Lord. Wise living is living in the light of the Lord. So, let us read our passage today, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. And this is God's word, so take it as such. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, if you remember uh, Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church opens with praise and worship of God, right? He opens up with this statement of declaring the wonders and the glories of what God has done. It opens with thanksgiving, reflecting on the marvelous work of God, even in the life of the Ephesian church. Because God takes a dead people and makes them alive again. And that's a marvelous work. And not only does God make them alive, but Ephesians 2 tells us that he seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. 
And all this has a bearing on how we live, how we walk. And we come to another section here today where Paul works out this reality of what does it mean to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and that he starts in Ephesians chapter 4. And in the most immediate section, right before our passage today, we find Paul admonishing the church, warning the church, exhorting the church to not be engaged in works of darkness, which are unfruitful, but instead to live in the light, to walk in the light. And today we look at a different way of expressing this idea, these ideas of how do we walk worthy? How do we walk in the light? And we actually come to a quite popular uh, statement about that in our passage in verse 16, but we'll get there. But let's see first, wisdom walk. Wisdom walk. Or we might call this wise walking. And the scripture begins, look carefully then how you walk. And that word translated then in the ESV or in the King James Version is the same word translated therefore. Say, for instance, in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Or that, uh, that in verse 7 of chapter 5, therefore do not become partners with them. So we could begin this, verse 15, Therefore, look carefully how you walk. And this indicates to us, Paul's doing this because it indicates to us that he's shifting gears a little bit, right? He's giving us another example. And again, uh, what are we to do? Therefore, because it is true that Christ has shown upon us and changed us and made us into light, even as he is light, because that is true, because you are no longer in the darkness, then, therefore, look carefully how you walk, or be careful how you walk. And again, just to note here, that word walk is the same one that we have seen many times in this, uh, this letter, and it means this idea of live, right? Be careful how you live. We are not to live like we once did before we knew Christ. Because now that we are in Christ, everything has changed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the drumbeat of Paul in these last couple of chapters, isn't it? You've heard me say this time and again. And this is a reality that we have to incorporate and understand and know and believe and live out. You are different now that you are in Christ. Your whole life changes because of the work of Christ. You cannot, should not, live the way you once did outside of faith in Christ. Or if you've come to faith at a young age, uh, as I did, you know, I wasn't out doing lines of cocaine in the elementary school bathroom. Right? It's not, not my experience. So even if you came to faith in Christ in a, as a young child, understand this. You are to live differently than everything you see around you in the world. 
That's what Paul's been arguing time and time again. Because what God has done in you is truly life-changing. And yet, right, so I say that is true. You are changed in Christ. And yet, notice what Paul has been doing and is doing here again in our passage. Paul has been spending some time writing to the church that as much as that is true, ultimately, there is still work to be done. Right? There is still a need to work out your own faith with fear and trembling. There are still commands that we need to hear and obey today. And here the command is to be careful how we walk. Be careful how you walk. Look carefully then how you walk. So how should we walk or how could we walk? Let's look at the options here. What options does Paul give us? Right? He says, he writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Or in other words, we could say not as fools, but as wise. And by the way, Paul's not coming up with this contrasting ideas out of the ether. He's not just pulling them together and making this up. Rather, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is reminding us afresh of what we find in the wisdom literature. Right? This is something that the people of God has always known, that you can live unwise or you can live wise. And to that end, let's go to the book of Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. And I want us to walk through the whole of this. It's just a short little chapter. But I want us to walk through the whole of this. And, and, and I want us to see what Paul's getting at here, right? I want us to see that Paul's not making up these two kind of options in life. The unwise way of walking and the wise way of walking. But it's something that's rooted in the scriptures. It's rooted in what God has already said to his people. And I want us to notice these two ways and their outcomes. Right. And that's really important. Notice the outcome as I read through this, as you read through yourselves, notice the outcome. What is the result of these two ways of living life? Proverbs nine, starting in verse one. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way, 
Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So what we have here, right, is a picture of wisdom and folly. And if you notice, as we went along, they use very similar language. They call out. Your lack of understanding, turn here. If you're simple-minded, listen closely. I have something to teach you. But notice that the results, where they end up, the people who walk in their ways are very different. To the one who follows after wisdom, their days are multiplied, their years are added to their life. To the one who walks after folly, after unwisdom, there is death. And so we could say with Paul back in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully, watch your step for an an instant. You could be tumbling down into the gorge of hell. Now let's break these ways down a little bit. What does this actually look like in a day-to-day life? What is unwisdom? What does it mean to be unwise? What does it mean to be fools? And what does it mean to be wise? What is foolish walk? What does it mean to walk foolishly? Well, there are many places we could go in the scripture to answer this question. The scriptures gives us many admonitions, warnings, and exhortations, right? Good good encouragements about this. We could, for instance, look at the various examples of people's lives and see these two ways. We could, for instance, ask... Why was it that Abraham lied not once but twice that his wife wasn't really his wife but his sister? Did God not tell Abraham and make a covenant with Abraham and say, You will be blessed and you will bless all the nations? So why does Abraham take such risks as to foolishly lie and not tell the truth. Or we could look a couple of generations later and ask, and it has a very different outcome, by the way, why does Esau sell his birthright for a bowl of stew? Do you think Esau was really in such a state That if he didn't have something in that very moment, he would expire. That he couldn't have gone somewhere and at least gotten a drink of water or some goat's milk. Why would he give up something so valuable for something so trite? Because he's foolish. 
That's the walk of foolishness. And again, we could go through and look at a million examples in the scriptures of people who walk in foolishness. We could, for instance, and this is a good one because such is the meaning of his name, we could look at the, the incidents between uh, King David before he becomes, before he really ascends to the throne, and Nabal. And do you remember his wife, Abigail? who saves the lives of everyone in their household because Nabal refused basic courtesy to David and actually shamed him by saying, Who is, who's David? Who, who's that dead dog? And why would I give him anything good? And by the way, we're told in the scripture that Nabal means fool. All right, fool. But most fundamentally, the way of the fools is this. Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So let us understand that the first act of walking like a fool is this, to not acknowledge God, to say that God is not God. And we can do that in our words. We hear people do that in, in their words, right? Today we hear people say, there is no God. There can be no God. He's a figment of your imagination. He, he doesn't exist. It's all fake. They can look at the expanse of the stars above and the wonder of the earth about them and the beauty of the fields and the intricacies of their own body and say, nope, no God. That's foolishness. But we also have to recognize that the fool says where in his heart that there is no God. And the psalm continues, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So what's the point there? It's not just those who verbalize and say that there is no God is the fool, but it's also the people who maybe say there is God, but in their actions deny God. They may say with their lips that there is a God, but they act as if there isn't a God. And what do I mean by that, right? I mean, there are people who do not consider God's ways, God's commands. They confess belief in God, but then they believe that they can come to him in their own terms. Now, really what God needs to do is adjust to my expectations and demands, not the other way around. You may say that there is a God, but if all you do is evil deeds, then the truth is you believe that there is no God. Because what sane person, listen to this closely, what sane person would invite divine wrath on them from an all-powerful God? And the only answer we can arrive at is a foolish person. No sane person would, but a foolish person does. So Paul is telling us right there that there is a way of living in this world that is unwise. It doesn't acknowledge the truth of God. It's foolish. Well, then what is wise walking? What does it mean to walk wisely? 
Well, I've actually really already answered this in part, right? You could you could see it in the answer I just gave is what it means to walk like the fools. And if you know what it's like to walk in the fools, you don't do that, right? You don't do that. You do the opposite of what they do. Wisely walking means acknowledging God, not just with our lips, not just with verbal assent, but with our hearts, with how we live, with what we do. What's the beginning of wisdom? We read that already, right? Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do we mean by this fear? Are we talking about being afraid? Is that what we're talking about? That we should be afraid of God. Now, there is a sense in which we should be afraid of God. He is terrifying. Uh, you see, for instance, in Isaiah 6, when he has that vision of God in the temple, he is terrified. And he doesn't actually even see God. He just sees the angels, hears the angels, sees the smoke, sees the train of God's robe filling the temple. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. He is awesome and mighty. And he can do anything in accord with his character. And if he wanted to unmake you, he could. And he wouldn't have to do anything. You realize that? He would just say the word and it'd be done. Think about that. That's what creation is. Creation is God didn't get together a bunch of materials and then he formed them and he put them together and he started, you know, mixing the stew and all this. What did, how did God create? He spoke and creation obeyed. He spoke and it happened. But the Apostle John writes that perfect love casts out fear. It casts out that being afraid. Because we know in Christ that God is not against us, but for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? Right. So fear here in, in Proverbs 9 means reverence, deep respect. It means we listen when God speaks, we obey. We read and heed what he says. It means that we understand this to be fundamentally true. That when God speaks, it is true and it is good. We could add more to it, but if, even if we start in those two things, that when God speaks, whatever he says is true and it is good. So we could maybe summarize or make this a little bit easier to understand what the difference that Paul is describing here. The wise listen to God's word and obeys. The fools listen to their own word and disobeys God. It's more what Paul's writing about here, right? It's more than that. But if we just even want to start somewhere, that's a good place for us to start. Right? The wise listen to God and obey. The fool listens to himself and disobeys. So how do we get wisdom then? How, how can we be wise? How can we walk wisely? 
How can we be sure that this is the trajectory of our life is one of walking wisely? For some of you, James 1 may be screaming in your ears at this point. And if not, I wanted to. James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Right? If any of you lacks wisdom, James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And that's, that's right, right. That's good. And I love that James gives us there that extra encouragement that he gives generously to all, so to any who would ask of him, and he gives without reproach. He gives without scoffing. He doesn't say, you're here again asking for more wisdom. How stupid are you? That's not, the, that's not the manner of God. That may be the manner of our parents. That may be the manner of our friends. But that's not the manner of God. What does God do? He says, I'd love to give you more wisdom. I'd love to do this. We have to understand that this wisdom, that walking wise, doesn't, listen closely, it doesn't naturally arise from us. We are not wise naturally. Indeed, let's go back to Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. And let us understand that this is true of those who are outside of Christ. And guess what? We all once were outside of Christ. Listen to this. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Did you hear that there? Futility of their minds, darkened in the understanding, ignorance that is in them. What are we talking about here? Those who are outside of the kingdom of God do not know the Lord, and they live in accord with the futility of their mind. They don't know any better. And this is something we have to come to terms with. It's our sin nature. right? That which we are born with and is most natural to us is foolishness, not wisdom. Indeed, it's exactly what the evil one promised from the beginning. Right? What does the evil one do when he tempts Adam and Eve? Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be wise. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll be better for it. And you know what? Were we better for it? And maybe this is why we understand, or we have to get to understand, that the evil one is the father of lies. Because we're not better for it. We didn't gain wisdom by eating of the fruit. Adam and Eve weren't wiser after they ate of the fruit. They were what? Fools. Foolish. They lost wisdom. They didn't gain it. We lost the ability to, bay, 
to obey God in the way that we need to. And again, think here back of Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, right? That those who are outside of God's grace in Christ are operating in vain minds, futile minds, darkened understanding, and ignorance. So what's the difference with you, believer? What's the difference in you? The difference in the believer is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He who is wisdom indwells you. And by the way, that's one thing. If you go back to the book of James and you look through, some commentators will point out that in James, wisdom stands in the place of Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit that we would read like in Paul's letters, right? You need, in Paul's letters, he would say, you need the Holy Spirit. And in James' letter, he says, you need wisdom. And what we have to realize is that we're not talking about two separate things. We're talking about the same thing in two separate ways. To have the Holy Spirit is to have wisdom. Without the Spirit, we can have no wisdom. And you, brothers and sisters, are to be careful to consider how you live so that you live in wisdom and not in foolishness. Because the reality is the spirit of wisdom lives in you. And how wise is God? He's all wise. I love the way Paul describes it to the Corinthian church. The foolishness of God is wiser than all the wisdom of God. If we could say that God has foolishness, it is wiser than the wisdom of men. So how wise is God? And so we need to ask God for wisdom. We need to ask for his grace to walk in wisdom now. We need this. Because the reality is dark days will be ahead when we need wisdom. And so let's look at that next wisdom time or we might say wisely using our time and look at verse 16 verse 16 making the best use of the time now if you learn this verse in the king james version you might remember it as redeeming the time redeeming the time because the days are evil and the thought seems to be something like the ESV translates it here for us, right? The ESV kind of helps us to understand a little bit more what that word redeeming is really about. And it's about making the best use of our time. Or we could look, for instance, how the net version translates it, renders it, taking advantage of every opportunity. And that seems to be what the thought is here. And Paul gives us the reasoning for this. Why do we need to make every advantageous use of the time before us, of every opportunity that comes our way, of how life proceeds before us. Why? Because the days are evil. Well, what does that mean? What are evil days? What does Paul mean by this? Well, we could go back in the Old Testament. We could see a few examples, and we shall uh, see a few examples of how this idea of evil and this idea of time are used together and maybe arrive at some kind of conclusion about what Paul might be have in view here. We could, for instance, look at Genesis 47, verse 9. 
Genesis 47.9. We have a description. Jacob gives a description of his life before Pharaoh. So let's kind of recall where we are in the narrative of the book of Genesis. Joseph has uh, risen to the second highest authoritative position in the land of Egypt after having been almost killed, uh, thrown into slavery, right? Sold into slavery, thrown into jail, and now he's uh, the second highest authority in the land of Egypt. There's a famine in the world, and his brothers have come to him because Joseph wisely administrates Pharaoh's coffers, of which include much grain. Right? Pharaoh stored up grain because of the wisdom given to Joseph by God for this purpose, to save, uh, to save the promised seed of Abraham. And then Jacob finally makes it to see his son he thought was dead, and he's brought before Pharaoh, Genesis 47, 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Few and evil is how Jacob describes his life. And if you think over Jacob's life, uh, you realize he didn't always have a good time, right? Uh, we could go back to when he was young and him and his brother uh, got the whole sibling rivalry thing down really well to the point where Esau wanted to kill Jacob and probably would have if Jacob had not escaped. Uh, you could look at the uh, time when he was uh, hoodwinked by his uncle and marrying the wrong sister. You could look at the kind of other just calamities that befell him. Uh, he's had striving and struggles aplenty. Uh, and even before Pharaoh, the reason they're there is because there's famine in the land, right? It's calamity. Also consider, consider this, right? Why would, why would Jacob say few and evil have been his days? He is only just now learned that his son is alive that he has mourned, grieved for years and years and years. And seeing his son Joseph alive doesn't erase the time that he has spent mourning his son. And by the way, we know he grieved the loss of his son because when the brothers are going to Egypt to get grain, to get food, uh, one of the things that comes up again and again is you can't take Benjamin with you because if you lose Benjamin, that's it for me. I'm done. I've already lost his brother. I can't lose Benjamin. And so uh, it doesn't erase the evil days. And so what are evil days? They're days of trouble. They're days of hardship. They're days of calamity. And the other references I want to share confirm that. Look at Psalm 37, verses 18 and 19. Psalm 37, 18 and 19. There the psalmist sings, The Lord knows 
the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. So one of the things I want to point out here, right? Note, it's not that evil days only happen to evil people. Right? The psalmist says here, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. And then verse 19, they are not put to shame in evil times. So there's the reality that evil days are experienced by the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? Even the righteous suffer under days of famine. But there are all kinds of calamities that may befall. I mean, consider, for instance, the story of Job. Don't you think Job would have called the days that he suffered, the days when he sat in the ash heap with the shards of pot scraping the boils off his skin as evil days, as evil times? God redeemed his days with blessing, right? God redeemed those days with blessing. God redeems evil days. And he works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But we can still call them evil days. Solomon, too, helps shape our understanding of these evil days. Look at Ecclesiastes 12, 1. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Solomon writes there, in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, Remember also your Creator. In the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon tells us wisely to remember our Creator, right? Because again, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Remember your Creator, even in the days of your youth, because evil days will come. The reality of this life is that we will have days in which we will say, I have no pleasure in them. Um, I don't mean to, to be uh, sullen about this. I'm certainly not being trite by saying this. But if you want to prove the reality of this, go to the nursing home and ask and talk. And I don't know if you've ever sat with old saints with many gray hairs and they look at you and they ask, I don't know why God still has me here. I just want to die. Right? And that, that presses upon you. And we see the truth of what Solomon writes. There are days when we will say, I have no pleasure in them. Our bodies racked with pain. Our inability to do the things that we used to do. Or from things external to us. Things that happen outside, calamities in the world around us that impact us. Most directly, think about the context of the Ephesian church. They're under Roman rule. There's coming a time when Nero's going to set Christians on crosses and set them on fire to light his garden. Evil days. Paul himself suffered greatly because of the Christ he preached. Evil days at the hands of evil men. And our context may be different today, right? We're not under Roman rule, 
But walking wisely means that we understand the course of this world. We understand what life entails. So those are the evil days. Evil days are coming. Evil days are here. So how do we walk wisely? How do we redeem the time? How do we make most use? Make the most use. Making the best use of the time. Well, here's a fundamental question that we must answer in relation to this, right? Are you attending each day to that which is most important? Are you attending each day to that which is most important? There are a lot of things that we can do in a day. There are a lot of things that we want to do in a day. But are the things that we are doing that which are most essential? We need to spend the temporal in light of the eternal. I'm going to say that again. We need to spend the temporal in light of the eternal. What do I mean by that? We need to spend our temporary time here on this earth living in light of the eternal weight of glory to come. We could say, for instance, the way that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 3, as he's describing this, as he's describing one who builds on a foundation, what does he say there in 1 Corinthians 3? He says that we can build on the foundation of Christ with hay, with straw, with stubble, or we can build on the foundation of Christ with gold and silver and precious stones. And guess what? At the end of the day, on the day of judgment, each man's work will be tested by fire. So, we could consider it that way. We can consider what the Apostle Paul, or sorry, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... Listen to this. Listen closely to what John writes to us here. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friend, there are many things that you can seek on this earth that will do you no eternal good. Indeed, all that this world promotes as important and wonderful is passing away. You may hear, hear from the world that you need to leave a legacy. You need to amass a fortune so that you can retire and you know, really enjoy the evil days of your life in which you say, I have no pleasure in them. But all those things pass away. They're vanity. Go and read the book of Ecclesiastes. Follow the, the sermon of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Because he says, I did all this. I tried all this. And what I realized is all that is under the sun is vanity. It's grasping after smoke. Because none of it's eternal. What is eternal remains. 
and those who pursue the eternal things, who understand the cost of those things, these are the ones who walk in wisdom. So brothers and sisters, you need to live with understanding of the eternity stretched before you. You need to know what makes for eternity. And so I'll ask again, are you attending to the most critical things of the day? What's the quality of your time in God's word? What about your time in prayer with him? How about the ways in which you are to be shining as light in the darkness? Do you seek the things that God would have you seek? Or are you so earthly minded that you are no heavenly good? Do you know what the will of the Lord is? And let's consider that next. Wisdom will. Wisdom will. Or we might say, walking out the will of God is wisdom. So look at verse 17. Therefore, or because, so then, do not be foolish. What are we saying? Because we know the days are evil. Because we know that there's calamity. Because we know that this world and its ways, its desires are passing away. So then, don't be foolish. Don't be fooled. Don't follow after these things. Don't seek them. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen, the fool does not understand God's will and lives accordingly. The wise man understand God's will and lives accordingly. Those are both true. So let me ask the billion dollar question. Can we know the will of the Lord? And the answer is yes. Yes, we can know the will of the Lord. Uh, we can know what Christ wants for us. And I ask that question because sometimes I think we, we treat the will of God as this kind of esoteric uh, esoteric knowledge that we, we can't understand, that we can't fathom, that we can't know, that we can't seek out, that we can't find. It's just confusing. Uh, you know, we ask God for the blinking sign, to, the blinking neon sign to fall from heaven to tell us which way we should go in a thing. And that's the only way we think we can know the will of the Lord. But we can look to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. Okay, so let me just pause here and say, you want to know what God's will is for you? Listen up. Here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you, Christian, is that you would be holy. And part of what that means is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And by the way, doesn't that sound familiar to what we've seen in Ephesians chapter 5 thus far, right? Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't live in the passions of your flesh like the Gentiles do. But can we really know what the will of the Lord is? Back in verse 10 of chapter 5, Paul writes, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Or we could, for instance, consider Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it takes the renewal of our mind. It takes discernment. It takes training and testing. It takes looking at the choices before us through the lens of the scripture. Because here's the reality. There are things in life that God clearly does not want us to do. Right? He's clearly commanded us, don't do this. So when we go to a situation in which we're presented with, should I do this, which God has commanded not to do, or should I, uh, should I not do it? We know what the will of the Lord is. He's taught us plainly. And there are areas of life that God commands us to do. He tells us to do good, right? There are good things that we are to be about. So again, when we're presented with a situation, should I do this or not? What is your will, Lord? If God has told us to do it, guess what? We have our answer. That's the will of the Lord. We don't need to consult with the astrologers to figure this out. Okay? Right? And then there are areas of life where God gives us freedom to exercise dominion. So what do I mean by that? That there are choices that are presented in life that are up to us to determine. And that's really where we get into the thorns, right? That's where it gets more difficult for us. For instance, if you're looking to what college you should go to, that's a question that's really up to you to determine. God gives you freedom to exercise that choice. However, there are some principles that can help guide us in that choice, right? If, if, you, if your choice is to go to a godless college that denies Christ in everything they'd say and teach and do, and there's no presence of Christ there, and God's not calling you to be a missionary there, then the answer to that is probably... Ah, that's probably not wise to go there. That's probably not wise to be influenced away from the grace of God. Or we could look at it from a financial perspective, right? If, if going to that college is going to put us under such a tremendous amount of debt that by the time we're paid it off, we'll be dead. That probably too is not wise choice. Now, wisdom may be taking a little bit longer to get through school, working as you go, Paying it off as you go. Or maybe going to a less costly school that gives you a like education, so the same degree, but for a less cost. Those are wisdom choices that we have to make. And those are the areas, right, we need to ask God for wisdom, certainly. Again, we could look at this in this way. What about decisions in, in our business or our workplace? There are some easy choices. Right? God says clearly, don't use false scales. Today, we don't really weigh stuff so much, but right, don't cheat people. Don't tell them, I'm giving you the best product and then giving them the cheapest product. Right? Don't say, I'm going to give you this, but I'm really going to substitute something cheaper in. Uh, I'm going to adulterate what I'm giving you so that way uh, you don't have that. Uh, again, we could talk about the modern means of doing this, uh, like keeping the box as big as it is 
and then you open up the box and there's like, you know, a little tiny packet in it. There's something there about that, right? There's something that the marketers know what they're doing and they know they're tricking us. And I'd say that probably almost gets us to the point of false scales. Right? So we can, we can, we know some easy things. But there are other decisions that we have to take to the Lord and ask him what's the best way forward. Right? Again, I would say that there are principles in the scripture that we can help us uh, to make those choices, to make those decisions. But there are certainly clear, clear things. What we shouldn't do in these choices, what is not wise living, is saying, I'm going to make the choice that I want to make, and Lord, you better get on board with it. That's not wise living. Sometimes that's how we treat God in prayer, right? We go forward in our choice. We go forward in what we want to do. And then it all fails and messes up. And then we're like, oh, God, can you fix this? God, can you, can you make this right? Can you make this better? Oh, or uh, maybe, you know, God, can you align yourself with my plan? Can you get on board with me here? Many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We would do well to remember that. And we should strive to understand God's purpose. Now, I know this is all kind of a flyover about these decisions, um, but we also have to realize that we don't have to make decisions alone. God has given us the church, right? God has given us one another in Christ that we can uh, help us to understand and consider perspectives that we don't see. And by the way, when I say all this, you know, the, the greatest thing that we can do for one another when we're, when we're struggling with these kinds of decisions is not, let me tell you my thoughts and opinions about your, your problem. The best thing that we can do is go to the scripture and say, you know, let's see what God's word says about that problem. Let's see what God, what, what do the Proverbs have to say on this issue? Let's go to God in prayer and let's, let's ask him for wisdom for you for the way forward. It all goes back to the scriptures here, right? God has already spoken and told us his will, and we need to study and test and examine to be able to discern it. It takes a little bit of work there, right? There are words of wisdom for us right here in God's word. We need to understand the will of the Lord. So wise living is living in light of the Lord, right? It's living in light of who God has revealed himself to be because he has made known to us his will in his word. So we need to strive to understand him. We need to strive to understand his word to be able to wisely walk. And so brothers and sisters, are you using your time wisely? That's one of the uh, fundamental questions here of this passage, right? You are to make the best use of your time. You are to make, take advantage of every opportunity. You are to redeem the time. And I want us to be clear what I don't mean. I don't mean here, are you being productive? with your time. There's a whole host of videos and books and seminars about side hustles and how you need to, you know, hustle and work and make every minute economically productive. Now there's a reason why I add that word economically productive because that's often what those are about. That's often what you hear in our culture, right? You need to be productive and by productive we mean economic productive. You're making money. And some equate living wisely with making the most money. But that's not the question. I'm not asking you, are you productive? 
I'm asking you, as the scripture asks us, are you wisely living in light of the Lord? Are we prioritizing what he does? So if we wanted to use that question of productivity more accurately, I might ask you, are you being biblically productive? Are you being biblically productive? Are you being spiritually productive? That is, are you attending to the things most important to that which God says is most important? We could, for instance, ask it this way. What does Jesus say about food and clothing? What does Jesus say about food and clothing? Matthew 6, 33. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't say, seek first, optimizing your routines and business so that you're economically productive, and therefore you have the means to buy the food and clothing you need. It's not what Jesus said. That's sometimes what we hear the church say that Jesus said. And certainly that's what we hear the culture say about what is most important. But Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom of God. You know, one of the things that came into my mind the last time that Jack preached is that in heaven, you will never regret not having sinned more. You will never regret not having sinned more than you have. We could also add to that, a corollary to that is, you will never regret in heaven not finishing that TV series or playing another round in your video game, right? And there's so many things that we could add to that, right? Uh, reading fiction books, reading nonfiction books, being economically productive. The world and its things are passing away. And by the way, seeking the kingdom of God first doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. God is not calling us to laziness, right? He tells us to seek the kingdom of God. We work, but as unto the Lord. So for instance, men, here's an example for you. Seeking the kingdom of God means providing food for your family. That's what that means. That's what wise walking is, providing food for your family and however God sets forth for you. We don't worry about it. We don't say, uh, I'm going to starve this week. God, what are you doing? But we seek God. And part of what God says is work. We could look at the letters to the Thessalonian churches to see more about that, right? Where Paul has to deal with them there and says, you know, some of you are just not working. But if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. See that. Understand that, right? This is wise living. Are you using these evil days wisely? Are you taking care of how you walk so that you're not walking as the godless unwise who deny God in word and deed? And this is something we have to consider as a church family too, right? We have to consider for us as a church, are we being wise? Are we making the most use of our time? Are we wisely using our resources and our energy for the glory of God? And by the way, that's not just a question that I, as a pastor, need to ask and answer. 
That's a question for you as church member. You need to ask and answer that question. You, church member, have a responsibility before God for the direction of this church. And certainly by saying that, I'm not saying I have no responsibility or that I have equal responsibility with you. I would argue I have greater responsibility than you on this. Because here's the reality. There are many good things that we can be called to as individuals. And it doesn't mean that we should direct the, you know, change the mission of the church to that end. We need to understand what purpose we exist for as a church. Why does God gather a group of believers together? What's his purpose in doing that? We need to know the answer to that question. And for young people too, right? Uh, you believe that you have an endless set of days ahead of you. That everything uh, that you think about, you'll have time to do. You believe that plenty of time is before you. But you need to pray that God would help you to number your days. That he would give you a heart of wisdom to understand how fleeting your life is. Because will you use the time wisely? Will you remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come? Go and read John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. And realize that there is much that we could end up regretting if we're unwise. There's so much that we could regret in our foolish walking. The world is built upon foolishness, shifting sands. And some of you need to wake up to this reality. Your dedication to the things of this world is vanity. It's worthless. This world and its ways are passing away. And, and listen, Satan's goal. Here's Satan's goal. What is Satan's purpose? That every day of your life, may be used in service to evil. And evil is not just doing bad things. That's evil. But evil is also failing to do the good things that we are called to do and commanded to do. It's failing to bring God the glory to his name. That's evil. So repent of such empty ways. See Christ. See Christ first. Understand what the will of Christ is. Because do you think that Christ Jesus died on the cross so that you could continue to live your immoral life? Do you think that Christ suffered upon the cross so that you could spend the rest of your days devising and carrying out your own selfish schemes? No, he redeemed a people for his own possession, a people zealous for good works. That's Titus, by the way. So repent of your sinful ways and turn to Christ Jesus. And I realize that some of you here hearing this um, may not acknowledge God. You may say in your heart, there is no God. You may say with the way that you live your life that there is no God. That is foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And try as you might to live in accord with the world's wisdom, you will find yourself wanting you will find yourself unsatisfied because before you can start living wisely, you have to acknowledge your creator for it is to him that you must answer as creator. He gets to set the rules. He gets to make the commands and his creatures are the ones that have to obey them. Don't get that confused because a lot in this world would say, well, no, I'm God and I make the rules. 
And any other so-called divine being, he has to follow my rules. No, that's not how it works. That's like an ant looking up to you and saying, shaking his fist at you saying, don't you dare step on me. Don't you dare crush me. Don't you dare disturb my home. I'll really let you have it. And then you flick them away. If you think that you can please God in your own ways, you will find yourself devastated because your ways are sinful. Your ways are not God's ways. They are an affront to him. And so what's the answer? Jesus the Christ. He came and stood in the place of sinners, bearing the wrath of God for sin on the cross. His death became an atoning sacrifice by which man can be forgiven of his sin and be set free. And so confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's the promise of the scriptures. So believe it. Do it. Turn to God. Turn from your sins in repentance. Ask him to help you. Ask him for the spirit of wisdom to show you the truth of his word. Seek Christ. For all who come to Christ, he will in no wise cast out. And then spend the rest of your days walking in wisdom, looking carefully how you walk, not as unwise, not as the perishing, not as those who are darkened in their understanding, but as the wise, as those in the light, as those who have learned Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, forgive us for our foolishness. Forgive us for our foolish words and foolish deeds. Father, for our foolish thoughts. God, help us instill in us understanding and knowledge and insight. Father, give us of your spirit that we may walk wisely in this life, that we may understand the truth, believe the truth, and live the truth. Father, we know that without your grace, without your work in us, we can do nothing. Without Christ abiding uh, in us and us in Christ, we can do nothing. And so we ask for your grace. We plead for your mercy. And we are thankful unto you, Lord God, that you hear us, that you listen, and that you act. Not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of your only begotten Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.